Hi, John. Hi, Reed. Good to see you. Good to see you too. How are you doing today? Pretty good. It's uh, we're coming up on the uh, Declaration of Independence uh, weekend. Yeah. And uh, so a lot of people have a bit of time off, and many people are getting a chance to get out into nature and have a little fun. Yeah. So doing it safe, of course, with them, um, with. The, the physical distancing and all that stuff, but uh, getting into nature is so healing for most people. It's it's really nice to see that. Yeah, it's it's it does seem like uh, the summer is here, and and before the whole sunshine goes away, we all should have a little bit of fun in the safe way. <laughs> uh, beautiful. Uh, and is this a long weekend then uh, in the U.S.? I think so. I, I I live in a little different kind of world that way. I don't have normal. Uh, work schedules. I, I work uh, out of my home anyway, much of the time. So, and then we have the sacred land sanctuary, which is, is uh, 400 acres of sacred land. that goes back uh, probably at least 20,000 years as sacred land that was protected by the native peoples going way back. I go there and spend half the day there and that's my living room. And then half the day back at my home. It's a, it's a nice alternation. Beautiful. That's a, so that's a luxury, John. <laughs> living in yes. London, I can tell you that having that that many uh, acres of a living room <laughs> is beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I, I go up and I there's a, on this sacred land sanctuary. Um, we're trying to establish a model of what it means to preserve sacred land in a in a Western context, in a modern urban, or what did I say, urbano, techno, industrial, cultural context. And, yeah. uh, and of course, this is just the way things are for indigenous peoples, but it's not that way for, for most West, Western or modern uh, Westernized cultures. It's hard, I don't use the word Western anymore because, you know, India, China, Japan, they're all buying into the the industrial, urbanized, highly technological, uh, cultural perspective. Yeah, we left our organic, homegrown food in India and started having McDonald's and Coke. So it's a it's a bit of a tragedy. Uh, just watching yeah. the culture <laughs> vanish. I just had a great dish of turmeric with curcuminol laced through it. It was a, a beautiful uh, Indian curry. Beautiful. Uh, last night oh sounds lovely it's very good for antioxidants and immunity as well during this time inflammation as well yeah great i think uh you know i know we wanted to just touch upon an independence as an idea is so important to all of us right like not just because we are trying to find independence yeah it's not just an american thing i think it's 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 kind of a global uh, interest how do we really become independent and uh, and live a life from our core and be true to that yeah yeah and 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 this spectrum of independence where a lot of the times in the history and in the evolution of cultures what we have seen is the western society has with enlightenment and scientific revolution found a way to create a level of independence from the elements, a level of independence from 
the the cycles of droughts and famines and and the the, the extreme temperatures and so on. And at the same time, the Eastern cultures have said, actually, we want to focus on finding independence internally and sort of just leaving that external environment as it is. And, you know, being in the West and exploring a lot of these teachings which have emerged from Native and in, in Eastern cultures, I wonder if we can perhaps find a way to marry them together because I'm sensing that being on the two either extreme is perhaps not as efficient or not as as freeing as finding a harmony between the two and and why this is coming up for me right now is you know I we were speaking earlier and I've just moved from one apartment to another and a lot of my inner work about finding space was harder in a cramped uh, shared apartment in central London. And I can see how much of a difference external space makes in my internal space. So it seems to me that someone who would do two days of practice in a, in a difficult environment could have environmental conditions that are much more supportive of the cultivation, which is the term that you speak of in the book, cultivating the natural liberation. So with that as a context, I thought we'll sort of open it up and try to get your perspective on independence. What does it mean as a concept and, and how do we marry both uh, the best of both worlds? Yeah, I think it, we, we were chatting a little bit before and I was struck a couple of days ago that here in the States, we, we, this is the weekend when we celebrate independence and uh, independence from the British Empire. And um, <clears throat> it's, a, it's a really interesting concept and I think a very important one as far as how at least uh, American culture developed because it was based on that becoming free from some of the constrictions of being part of the British Empire. And uh, we had a big tea party that was part of that. Uh, no need to go into the details around that, but a lot of the tea ended up in the ocean. So um, in any case, <clears throat> one of the interesting things that uh, I've learned from especially my, my Taoist uh, practice and cultivation is that uh, when you have something that's a clear term like independence, uh, it naturally and automatically there's a, an opposite component that goes along with that. And uh, in this case, inter independence would be the complementary yin-yang com partner to that would be interdependence. Or the, in the Buddhist tradition, uh, the Buddha talked about how everything, all the form aspects, including ourselves, are codependently arising. We're arising as a, as a, as a web of form. And we, how we arise is dependent upon each other's arising as forms as well. And of course, we're arising from source, manifesting in, in the field of that and then dissolving back into that when, from moment to moment. So the, the um, I think that he saw that as one of the core uh, insights that came from his, his deep immersion in, in fundamental deep inner truth that this, there's this, this basic uh, interconnectivity that we, we are also very much uh, part of. I thought it would be nice 
to celebrate today, uh, in a sense, is we're celebrating not just in the States, but I think this was taken on in many parts of the world, this idea of an independence period or day or weekend uh, to celebrate the beautiful interconnectivity and interdependence that is also going along with this uh, experience of being freed up from some of the strictures of the past. Um, <clears throat> the, uh, when, you, when you take the, those two aspects, the independence and the interconnectivity of the codependently arising aspect of, of everything really, uh, you end up with a, a much more integrated being which is in a state of much deeper harmony than if you were just to emphasize either only the, the codependently arising aspect. Obviously, that in its shadow side can become codependence. And then actually there's no freedom in that. That's one of the reasons some years back, especially we were talking a lot about the problems around codependence and over-alliance. <clears throat> and then the patterns of dependency that develop from that. So that's the shadow aspect, or can be the shadow aspect of this interconnectivity. In the same way, if we put all the emphasis on independence, we can get caught up in, uh, I'm going to do it my way, I'm going to have go ahead and get my gun, I don't care what's going on in the culture, whether people are getting shot around the, around the country, I want my gun, I'm going to go out and I'm going to use it. And... Uh, and in the same way around the current coronavirus thing, there's some currents in here in the States that says, I don't care what's happening to everybody else. I, I want to have the freedom to be able to go out and not wear my mask. Yeah. That's, I, it's very interesting for someone from the outside, yeah. from outside America, to just observe some of the things which just seem really baffling, like the fact that people would protest so strongly against wearing a mask, for instance. Yeah, uh, and this is, is part of that, that basic independence that was the foundation of American culture, and it's carried through. But there is a shadow side to it. When that independence uh, ignores the fact of the fact we are all basically interconnected. In the case of the virus, the virus has shown us that we're all really all profoundly interconnected through the exposure to disease. When you choose, when you wear a mask, you're not just protecting yourself, but you're especially protecting your loved ones and all those around you that you're, you're, you may be exposing if you're, carrying the, the virus, and especially if you're carrying it as one of the hidden forms of manifestation where a number of people just carry it and don't show any symptoms. So when you wear the mask, it's actually showing that you care and you have concern and compassion, and you're, you're, you really want to show your, your appreciation, appreciation and respect for all your loved ones and for others in general. And you're honoring the natural interconnectivity that we all have. And that can be, turn out to be a beautiful thing. In the case of healing a pandemic, the truth of the interconnectivity that the Buddha pointed out so beautifully uh, is really, uh, it provides a vehicle for the natural expression of compassion. So uh, it's, it's um, I think the, the, the virus thing has kind of pointed out 
the uh, the beauty of the compl complementary principle of the if we really celebrated our interconnectivity, our interdependence is naturally there as living beings. What a beautiful thing. And uh, another th example of that would be uh, the climate change crisis that we're all in the midst of entering into, which is a much bigger crisis than the COVID-19 in the bigger picture, because the impacts of that are going to be profound at every level. And not just for our species, but for the rest of life as well. So in the case of, uh, of that, uh, a declaration of inter interdependence would point out that the truth is that we're all part of a interactive biosphere made up of many local ecosystems. And these ecosystems are completely woven together and we are woven into the biosphere ourselves, uh, even just through our elements. And the fact that we're made up of wood and and water and fire and earth and uh, and air with every breath that we take and then there's this aspect of the space element that holds all the other elements even at that level we're we're, we're sharing all these elemental aspects and treating them with each other all the time through food through eating and excreting through the natural way in which an ecosystem population behaves and uh, the whole system becomes evolves in that context. And then, of course, when you build out from the person to the population, to the ecosystem, on out into the way ecosystems interweave together in the whole biosphere, uh, then, of course, you start looking at some of these bigger things that are happening, like uh, climate damage, where the release of methane and CO2 is through global temperature change especially is causing so many different kinds of disruptions already. And, um, and these disruptions, disruptions are pointing out how the behavior of our species is leading to all kinds of massive impacts, not just on other people and peoples maybe in distant areas, but also it's causing the, it's leading to much ma more massive and rapid extinction of many species with effects that we don't really understand since most living systems are woven together and, and really support each other. Uh, the basic law of life, speaking as briefly here as an ecologist that has struck me over the years is that the fundamental law of life is not competition. The fundamental law of life is collaboration and cooperation and symbiosis. If you look at how the different species have come together to support the unfoldment of ecosystems and the biosphere as a whole, and it supported the growth of an amazing diversity of life that spread all over the planet, even into, into places where you normally would not think of life going, like the depths of the oceans, the insides of volcanoes, uh, in some of the glacial areas of the north, far north and south, and mountains. And so life itself has a tendency to move against the general law of physics is entropy, where hot things become cold, matter tends to disperse, energy tends to disperse. But life tends to gather matter together to capture more and more energy and become more and more skillful at spreading itself around the planet and becoming uh, partnered with different aspects of the planet all over the earth. And in that partnership, different parts of the biosphere begin to function to, to 
provide a beneficial effect on the whole. And that's true with our human bodies. Each one of the organ systems does the same thing. Different organs come together, collaborate, cooperate to provide the, the health and the, and the, and the behavior of a, of a whole body in a healthy condition. It's no different from the, the biosphere. So this fundamental law of collaboration and cooperation is very much in harmony with this law of interconnectivity, inter interdependence. And in the same way, um, <clears throat> uh, competition and uh, the importance of the individual is there as well. <clears throat> but in the case of uh, ecological systems, the, the independent competitive behavior tends to be much smaller but I would say on the average about 10% of what's going on functionally within ecosystems and species and the behavior of the biosphere is, is competitive or what we would call competitive looking at it from the outside. But even there, that behavior is tending to improve the overall efficiency and uh, health of the of the larger system be it a population or a ecosystem or the biosphere as a whole so even there it's that independence and that competitive behavior is working towards providing more balance and over into overall integration of the larger system of the biosphere so unfortunately with something like climate change the changes are so massive and so comprehensive that it tends to leave lead to a cast it's appearing to lead to a cascading effect of negative impacts which then begin to accumulate and very much like what happens with disease in, a, in the human body when that cascading effect takes over even the immune system is overwhelmed and we die so the risk for the biosphere is the death of many many species and ecosystems and cultures for that matter so um, we're i think we're being asked by what's happening right now around the planet to kind of have a global declaration that honors and respects that, that you might say a declaration of interdependence, a declaration that says, yes, we're members of a vast family that is, is working to support a family of life that's working to support the overall health of the broader system of life. And maybe it would be, be a good complementary. Maybe if we had a day of interconnectivity, of interdependence to complement the, the very valid uh, Independence Day that we're doing here in the States right now. It could be a very healthy thing because it would help bring that independence back into a more balanced and integrated way that we, we see it and we practice it. And, um, and there certainly is a role for independent behavior, a lot of creativity, Comes out, it comes up and arises from that state of independence. Uh, it helps us free us from many of the strictures of the past, which were were repressive and caused a lot of pain and suffering for many, many of us, many cultures. And uh, so there's a role for that, for sure. But it doesn't mean that these other things are not also true at the same time: the interconnectivity, the in interdependence, and the and the fact that they, those two principles work together to create an overall state of integration and balance and harmony. Anyway, just a, a few thoughts on, on Independence Day. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. So what comes to me is 
perhaps a sense of finding an independence from our past, finding the presence in the now and observing the interdependence of the present into the future based on what you have just shared. And perhaps we could talk about or speak about the art of cultivating perception where mm -hmm. we are seeking to fully connect with the environment, being fully, fully open to the environment, and yet learning when to break away from the environment, when to close our windows of perception, of our senses, and that very subtle art of perhaps masking the windows with our own conscious intention. Because it seems what is difficult is a lot of the society lives in very highly charged and stimulated environment with information pouring down all the different senses, right? Our eyes are constantly being fed media advertisements and the phone. We always hear the ambulances and the sounds. We are constantly being given food which has been optimized for taste based on salt and sugar profile. So what has happened is a lot of us have lost the capacity to open and close the doors of perception. And some of us who are very receptive to it, we often have to move into, let's call it, away from the central world because it's too much stimulation. So we might find a place in nature, we might do a job that is remote and sort of take ourselves away like the ancient hermits and Buddhist monks and people did, like the Walden stories based on. So I'm wondering if we can find and think about the art of masking the perceptions as needed. So that even when there is COVID outside, you know, we can choose to go out with a mask in the same way while we have these stimulations, these micro-targeted advertisements and pollutants, we can still choose to go into the world rather than just say, this is not for me and I'm just going into nature because we need people who, who can receive the senses to possibly serve the, the greater whole of life. I've been really enjoying listening to the birds as you've been speaking. You've got a, quite a symphony going on, going on behind you there. Yeah. It's quite beautiful. Do you know, do you know the birds? I do not. I'm new to the place. 
they have wonderful, wonderful songs. I was, I was just really enjoying that as you were talking. It was kind of like the, the birds and you were, were sharing something together with sound. Uh, which kind of, in a way, gets back to your question about <clears throat> the process of how do we, uh, is it helpful to damp things down a little bit or be more skillful in the selection of working with the senses? Um, very good question. It's interesting, when I, some years ago, I began to work with the, the reality that I noticed most of my friends and, and those that I was around as human fellow humans were experiencing a lot of disconnection from nature. Or if they had a connection to nature, it was very funneled. They might go fishing or they might go out and do a bit of golf or they might uh, have a sport that takes them into nature for brief periods of time, but to go out into the nature and to really enter directly into relationship. Uh, I saw it was becoming more and more difficult for people to do that. In fact, many people were afraid to do that. I, I was, uh, I saw that especially with hiking and fishing that many of the people who engaged in those activities uh, were able to do some level of refinement. When you're fishing, you have long periods of stillness where you you're just waiting and listening and you're open for when the fish is ready to to take the lure take the bait when you're hiking you have the experience of a beautiful walk through the forest or the mountains and then you stop maybe take a little break and just absorb like i was hearing with the bird sounds with you you just stop and suddenly all these amazing sounds and visual sights of nature come flooding in and you get you take a deep plunge into oh my gosh i've been traveling through this amazing world this amazing uh, display of nature what a beautiful thing it is and it happens when we drop into a little moment of stillness and silence and space where we have that space for these things to arise and same with fishing hunters too have if you're still hunting especially they have those periods that they're very meditative where a lot of space opens up <clears throat> and their connections to nature can deepen very, very profoundly. The, um, in most of the meditative traditions, there's one whole branch that has to do with disconnecting from the senses and closing them down or putting them on hold for a little while so that you can focus on pure awareness, pure consciousness, on pure being as the focal point for your, your, your exploration of, of life. And in a way that's helpful because what you're doing is really focalizing or setting your intent on being with your true nature. You're really settling into a level of pure consciousness or pure awareness where no particular form, no particular kind of uh, light or sound or taste or kind of touch is, um, is the thing. Those are more like magical displays that arise from the state of absolutely pristine awareness and consciousness. And by kind of closing down the, the normal distractions and contractions that come with the engagement of the senses, it makes it simpler to do that, to drop into that. So there's a place for that, for sure. But the problem is that if you completely disconnect from the senses, then of course you're you're also, in a way, uh, disconnecting from the natural organic display of life, 
And there's so you've paid a bit of a price there in vocalizing everything on the true nature. So what we try to do in the in the way of nature is provide a means for honoring the pathway to the true nature, but also at the same time opening up and embracing the inner nature, its display of emotions and thoughts and feelings and uh, and its senses. And also then through that development of the inner nature, we begin to refine it so that we take each one of the fields of experience. We don't call them just the senses because you have sight, sound, taste, smell, touch. But you also have balance and movement. You have the experience of energy. You have the experience of the emotions and the thoughts. Uh, all of these things are also kind of experiential fields or thing, fields of experience that are very much go along with the experience of touch and, and taste and smell and, and sound and, and sight. So we learn how to refine those by working with each one of them individually over a period of time and meditatively. So as we go into the process of refining, by focalizing on one, then moving to another, we go deeper and deeper and deeper into the fine tuning of the experience. I think because of that kind of thing, you, 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 you're able to receive things you normally might not normally notice. Like when you were talking, I heard the birds and you together talking as one experience of sound. It's really quite beautiful. And so things like that begin to happen more and more and more. And <clears throat> you go through the experience of connecting with each one of those experiential fields so that you go through first not holding back or disconnecting, but connecting with and making a, an authentic connection with these, these, these different fields of experience. And then you go deeper and deeper into that, you're fine in the way we've just been talking about by paying attention to the details of the experience. And then through that, you begin to start having experiences of really bonding with what you see or what you touch or what you hear or, or what you, whatever the other, of the other nine fields are operative. And then as you go through all nine of the experiential fields this way, you ultimately realize that you're going through the same experience of freedom. In the beginning, maybe being disconnected, then connecting, and then having these deeper experiences of really bonding. We call that the experience of communion or natural communion. Now, when you start having lots of experiences of communion where there's still you, but there's also the other, and there's this tremendous interconnectivity, kind of unity, but a kind of unity where there's still the other and you at the same time. And you begin having that with many things uh, surrounding you. If you're doing this in a sacred passage or a nature quest with the way of nature, then of course you don't have any distractions from outer culture. You're able to really focus on the sequence of disconnect, connect, communion. And then finally, if you go continue going deeper, you have the experience of unity with each of the experiential fields of, that I mentioned before, sight, sound, taste, smell, touch, balance, and movement, energy, emotions, and thoughts. And um, when that refinement occurs at that level, you begin to experience everything surrounding you because you've, you've been very careful to refine each one of those experiential fields. You begin to have a, a, a experience of being part of this or unified with this amazing display of all those things that we've mentioned before. 
surrounding you. And if you're out in nature on a, on a solitary retreat, extremely powerful experiences of uni, unity can arise if you've prepared properly. And then you, you've embraced everything in outer nature that surrounds you. And it's bonded with everything in inner nature within yourself. And at that point, what we do is to take the, all that refinement and the experience of this, this, we call it the mandala level of experience and connection. Then you begin to follow all of that beautiful mandala of sight and sound and taste and smell and touch and, every, and thoughts and feelings. You follow it back into the place of origination into nature. And when that takes place, every one of those nine experiential fields points directly back into source. And then you just take that deep dive through the mandala into the essence of your being. And, uh, and that, that the result of that is, is really dropping you back into source or close to it. And uh, over a period of time, that too becomes more and more direct, more and more refined and goes deeper and deeper and deeper and becomes more and more stable. So the liberation process occurs through, initially you might separate yourself from uh, the different perceptions in order to not be caught up in distraction. And that allows you to become more one-pointed in your consciousness and be able to stay with one thing for longer periods of time. Initially it might be your breath or something of that sort or a point could be a meditative object in front of you, like a candle flame. But then as your capacity to become focused and one-pointed in your awareness, that becomes very, very well established. Then you can begin to release the, you might say, the fear of being distracted by the outer nature. And you can begin to embrace the, the experience of connectivity with outer nature which I just described. And at that point, uh, there's no longer any need for, uh, for trying to keep it at bay and keep it away in the distance. You embrace life quite fully and you refine the experience of life. And so ultimately, you're able to follow the entire experience back into source. But the one-pointed awareness and the non-distracted meditative skills are applied to that sequence of connection from disconnect to connect to communion to union to mandalic awareness and finally to returning to source it all depends on having developed a very single pointed still focused mental capacity which then ultimately is applied to the refinement process so that's in a nutshell how at least in the way of nature we work with this this question of how do we work with with the things that normally distract us and uh lead us away from a deeper inner truth. <clears throat> and we found it to be very effective, especially when you do this in nature where everything in your body and your mind for that matter, is part of a organic flow that's been around for millions of years. And our, every cell in our body is part of that unfoldment of life over millions of years. So when you do this in nature, everything in you kind of goes, ah, it's, I, I know this, this is, this is me. This is how my organism aspect evolved over a very long period of time. I'm at home, I'm here in nature again. Cities, TVs, bars, um, well, maybe they've been around for a long time, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, all these, these novel 
things like the electronics, the, the cell phones, all that stuff is, is quite new. And our body and our organism is not used to being bombarded by so many novel types of uh, electromagnetic fields. It's not just a case of novel viruses like COVID-19. There's all these novel fields of energy that we're now surrounded with. We're also walking with rubber-soled shoes a lot of the time, so we no longer are making the natural connection through our feet to Mother Earth, which was the case for the millions of years as we evolved. And that connectivity to Mother Earth grounded ourselves so that as we began to experience disconnection problems in life, we immediately were regrounded with Mother Earth. A number of studies have been done that shows that if you walk on the earth for half an hour to an hour a day, just have bare feet on the earth with the kidney one points in contact especially. All of the, I won't say all, but most of the problems of novel electromagnetic pollution from computers, cell phones, and now uh, the, uh, <clears throat> the new generation of, of, of phone technology. All of those things are very rapidly healed and your body regrounds, reconnects, discharges the imbalances that occurred within overuse of these, these new technologies and you re, rebalance organically. So when you do a retreat in nature, you can imagine how comprehensive the healing is. And you're really, you're set up in a mode that really is perfect for the opening of these deep levels of connection to the, to the nine experiential fields. So in a way, what I've said is a, is a way in which, at least with the way of nature, we develop a pay that honors the truth of the codependently rising vast interconnectivity of the cosmos and all the forms of it with what we conventionally call ourselves. And we begin to realize that what we conventionally call ourselves is actually part of this amazing web of life. And uh, that's an extremely liberating experience. So through that, you actually free up your uh, excessive dependency upon a lot of other things, which are the shadow aspects of what we normally think of as our independent behavior. It's kind of paradoxical, but true. Beautiful, beautiful. And I think that was a very rich response. So a lot of interesting threads have emerged from that. The first was, you know, when you were speaking about how disconnecting from the senses is helpful to focus on the source of awareness. And mm -hmm. yes, if you the the dark retreats that people do and the cave retreats that people do. Yeah. Where all the portals are in a way not having any stimulation. So the only thing you can focus on is what's going on inside. I remember years ago, I had a friend who, LA, who had a uh, sensory deprivation chamber. And he invited me to come and experience it. And so I went out in a chamber that you go into it and float in a pool of uh, fairly, very intensely salty water so the body floated very, very easily in that high salt content water. And the temperature in there was, was kind of a perfect kind of a temperature where you didn't feel cool, you didn't feel hot, you're just 
perfectly balanced. And then uh, of course you're in total blackness and there's, there's refreshed air that moves through it. So you don't feel like it's getting stuffy. And then you float in kind of this space and, um, and there's nothing to really, because everything in each one of your senses is in a state of uh, stability and relative harmony to your senses. You can kind of let go of, of, of sight, sound, taste, smell, touch, and balance and movement even. And it's quite interesting to go into a chamber like that and then see what happens. It's actually a good way to access a little taste of what underlies the normal perceptions and gives you a chance to, if you have some meditative background to get the full advantage of the experience, then you can take a very deep dive into the fundamental level of your being through the, through the release temporarily of um, constantly changing perceptions. Uh, I'll mention one thing about this, it's kind of a bizarre thing to share, but many years ago, I was a young student in uh, University of Michigan and I, um, <clears throat> I had a professor there that um, uh, was also had a background as a, a Zen Buddhist priest. And he had studied very deeply in the Zen, Zazen practices of meditation from China and Japan. In China, it's called Chan. And um, he, was, he decided he was going to conduct an experiment on the, the values and the effects of meditation on the mind and on different kinds of behavior patterns and mental patterns. And I had a bit of a background in <clears throat> training in some of these things from before I went to college, but I was still a beginner in a lot of this kind of work. But I did have a background of at least uh, 10 to 15 years of vision quests. So before I did that, and this would have been in the late 50s when I met this professor. So he basically trained me in classical Zazen meditation. And I, uh, interestingly, he focused instead of on the breath, he focused on keeping the mind in the Dantian as the primary focal point. And also was then in a sharp posture, so your feet were actually in contact with the earth instead of disconnected in a cross-legged posture, which as it turned out was very helpful for things that happened later in my Taoist practice. But anyway, long story short, being a young student, I didn't have much um, money, so I had volunteered for those experiments with him, and he trained me in, in this, and then he would give me a battery of perceptual tests afterwards that eventually uh, came out in a book uh, which was um, published. Uh, it was a, by Charles Tart. It was an early book on psychological effects of meditation practice. I think it must have come out in the 50s or 60s, but it was a very early book in this, in this area. But in addition, I was, I was, in addition to getting a little help financially in doing that, I also worked as a dishwasher and, uh, and, um, <clears throat> and a waiter and worked my way through college like that. In those days, you could earn enough money from being a waiter and dishwasher to get through college. A fairly good one. Michigan's not a bad university. Um, but I needed a little bit more, so I took this job and I learned Zazen in the meantime. And then there was another job I saw. There's an ad in the paper to go out and uh, 
submit yourself to a series of experiments where I was put into a, uh, I had to sign up for a release form and, and be available for a, a full three-day weekend, a long weekend. And they would give you a small white pill. Half of the pills were a placebo, didn't have a sugar pill, had no effect. The other half took a pill that had some effect, I guess, on the, on the consciousness. Uh, I don't know what the effects were. They never told me. But I suspect it had some sort of psychoactive effect. As it turns out, I got the plain sugar pill, so I had no psychoactive effect whatsoever. But then you're you're asked to go into this sensory deprivation chamber for it could be three days. And so you go into the chamber, you're this was a different style where you had a kind of a, a cushiony type of foamy thing that supported your body. And there was a chamber they would close over the top and it was a bit of a claustrophobic experience because you're, you're completely enclosed in this capsule. But I took the experience of Zazen and my vision quest experience and I went into a very deep meditative state where I just dropped into, into pure awareness, pure consciousness. And I remember um, after remaining there for a long period of time, it seemed, but it could have been like a day or a day and a night, or it could have just been an hour. I could, time was no longer really part of my experience. So I just knew it had been in there a while. And they opened up the lid of the, uh, the sensory deprivation chamber to bring me out. Oh, by the way, they had a way you could pee in there. And so you weren't distracted that way. And uh, they took me out and uh, they said, how come you're not crazy and clawing at the walls of that chamber? I said, what do you mean? I said, well, most people that we put in there after two or three hours, they go absolutely nuts and they, they have to get it out. They just cannot stand it anymore. It's like extreme torture. But you were, you've been in there for nine hours. Uh, no problem whatsoever. You didn't, not a, not, no uh, neurotic or psychotic behavior, no uh, frantic panic attack type of things going on. Just completely peaceful and harmonious. How did you do that? I said, well, I do have a little training in, in meditation. So I applied some of that practice to my experience that you invited, invited me into. And then they asked me a whole bunch of questions about where the consciousness went, how it, that affected the body, and how I was able to overcome or prevent any panic attacks or extreme claustrophobic responses to the experience. Now, I have no idea what they were doing this experiment for us. Looking at many years later, I began to realize that it could have been some branch of government that was doing tests for uh, trying to extract uh, truth or brainwash people and do some nefarious kinds of stuff like that. I don't know. They never told me what the, the experiment results were used for, but I, but I had the unique opportunity to take the experiences that we're talking about and have a first kind of test run of meditation under extreme circumstances. And uh, a great lesson I've never forgotten. Beautiful. What I love is I have no idea where the stories are gonna go. 
Sometimes it's jaguars, <laughs> sometimes it's governments and, <laughs> and their sense deprivation chambers. Beautiful. I have actually done, uh, I think, a couple of sessions in, in these sense deprivation chambers. And oh, yeah. I found that to be quite interesting. In London, they, they are sort of marketed as uh, just a relaxation thing. You can book an hour. It's called flow therapy is what they call it. Uh, floating tank so you can go for an hour and yeah, this uh, seemed to me much more gentle than the kind of thing that that I was put into I think in those early days they hadn't perfected the the uh, the chambers and so they used this foamy material and you were in a fairly confined space this was more like a spa experience so it was where people come to relax <laughs> um, that's great uh, it's very interesting how was, how was it for you it was very interesting though. I found that I liked the feeling of being embodied. Mm -hmm. And you no, know, and this was perhaps a few years ago. So I had not really, I had begun my training a little bit in the Vipassana tradition. Mm -hmm. I started practicing my scanning meditation, more Ubakin sure. Burmese style. So you're doing the Glinka, Glinka system? Oh, yeah. yeah, exactly. So just the scans, and I was playing with that. It was very interesting. There were some thoughts I could observe. But at the same time, I feel that I really enjoy the feeling of ground. It's one of my favorite sense perceptions uh, to have as a portal. And I like the kinesthetic ability of that and the movement and balance to stay embodied uh, because I believe the water in these chambers is also designed so it is exactly at the pH level at least now of your skin so it sort of takes away the sense of being in a skin you start feeling like you are pretty much open yep it's very interesting it's fascinating it's just an interesting thing to explore in your own psyche I believe uh, but what what comes to me when you speak of that John, and you spoke about the way of nature process as well, was certain processes seem to be sharp and deep, but like a pin. They are not very open to the kind of world that we live in. So when we go really, really deep into them in a silent retreat format, it is workable if you are living in a monastery, but it is not workable if you come into central New York or London because your sense portals are very open. All your nine portals of perception are very open and they get completely taken over by the hyper input coming into the city. Super distracted and contracted. Yeah. And what's interesting is unlike nature where I want to be in if I'm in beautiful, harmonious nature, I'm very happy to have all my portals open. In a city yep. with its stimulants, I would like to close them. And I would like to learn to close them in a skillful way, rather than spontaneously contract at the response of the ambulance siren, right? And I feel mm -hmm. like that skill is is very, very rare, I find, because there are a lot of people who are going really deep in 
outside world. And then there are people who live in the city who know how to work and be effective in a very intense environment. But this ability to close and open and close and open, opening and closing these portals of senses, that is something that is very interesting to me. And I would love if you could reflect on that. And I found a little bit of Qigong work has been helpful in sort of expanding and contracting the energy body in finding that skill with, with the senses. And but anything you're, you could reflect on would be helpful. You do a lot of grounding too while you're doing the meditative aspects. Yeah, very, very good question. I think when you're talking about the difference of being in a city or out in nature, that kind of goes back to what we were sharing before. But every cell in your body having co-evolved within natural systems, and the, every cell in your body remembers that and recognizes that when you're back in that kind of a field. So that's one of the reasons that we we uh, always use nature as the main temple and the main uh, church, the main synagogue, and the place where we go for, for as the meditation hall, because it's so supportive. Now, of course, we try to find places when I run a retreat, say in Arizona or here in Crestone, Colorado, or down in the Baja, where we often do programs with the ocean and the whales as partners. I try to pick a time of the year. In Baja, we pick a time of the year when it's warm, perfect weather, and it's when the whales are coming by, so you can meditate with the whales as your partner and the dolphins. You don't have to go out in a boat. They come to you if you're in the right state of mind. And in the case of uh, Arizona and the Chiricahua Mountains, we pick times in the spring and, and fall where the temperatures are optimal. You're not going to be too cold or too, um, too hot. And uh, it's in the mountains. And there's a beautiful stream, so there's plenty of water. And uh, so we pick times that are kind of optimal where you're not going to be distracted by extremes of some sort in the environment. And same thing in Crestone, we tend to pick a time of the year when there's relatively few bugs. It's in the warmer months of the year or the uh, you might be getting into a bit of cool weather if it's in late spring or, or late fall. But um, those periods are fairly short and uh, for the most part the temperatures are kind of optimal for being outdoors and even taking your clothes off and taking a dip in the beautiful stream that runs through our sacred land sanctuary. Um, so main point here is that if you are in a place like that in nature where it's kind of optimal supportive conditions then there's very little likelihood you'll be distracted by some extreme of nature and you can really relax into the beautiful experience of that memory that every cell in your body remembers of being in a natural environment and you've removed yourself from all these novel electromagnetic fields. Just a quickie on that, I lived in, I did a 22 year retreat in a cabin up in the sanctuary when I first arrived here in Creston. And for 22 years, half of each year was spent in deep retreat there. So as the sum total was 11 years of a very deep retreat in nature, surrounded by these amazing fields of nature. And I had no electricity, I had no telephone, and uh, no bathroom except for out in nature and a little outhouse. The stream was my bathtub. Sometimes I would take water from the stream and make a little solar shower from it. 
and uh, then all the solar energy infused the water even more, and I was bathed in that energy effect. But long story short, all, there were no electromagnetic fields from phones or AC. And when I was exposed again to an AC situation for the other half of the year, I could immediately feel the kind of very rapid on-off of an AC alternating current. I could feel that. I was so refined in my perception, I could feel the AC current flowing through the houses that I entered. And I, but normally I was so grossified, so, you know, when I, it's a term I've had to come up with to refer to the, the way that the perceptions are damped down and muted, and I call it grossification. And I was so grossified that I was no longer able to perceive the being in a field of AC electricity, much less cell phones and computer fields. And, um, I'm mentioning this because most of us were so saturated with these things, we're not even aware of the effect they're having on our biology and our, on our consciousness. So when you go back into nature, you're freed up from all that stuff and you start to enter back into a very pure natural condition, which supports the refinement of your perceptions, the refinement of those non-experiential fields and the ability eventually just to go back and drop into pure consciousness and pure awareness again. So that's the reason we, we take people into nature and ideally in a sacred place where this has been done for thousands of years by the indigenous peoples, which is the case here in Crestone at the sacred land sanctuary, we call it. Uh, the Kogi Indians came here recently. We had a wonderful, uh, did a wonderful joint program together there. And they were just amazed that we had that somewhere in this modern ur urbano techno industrial culture some people have gotten together to preserve sacred land because of the inherent sacredness and that we were working with that deeply to honor the inherent sacredness and to give back to nature and thank nature for all the gifts that she has given us with everything that we do and every step that we take they were just blown away that there was a place like this in the modern world where this kind of activity was being done because this is how the Kogi live every single day, every single year in their high mountain environments of Colombia where they've survived over thousands of years undisturbed, relatively undisturbed. So um, this process of refinement is deeply supported by nature, long story short. And um, the, I can't remember, there's another component to your question, but I, I get a little caught up in the thing about nature. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. What was your other, there was another part of your question. I'll reflect the question <laughs> in birdsong. Uh, Very good. Because I, I think I've forgotten the question now. I got engrossed <laughs> in the story as well. Um, I learned this when I was a kid, actually, uh, to sort of create bird sounds with my <laughs> mouth. So let's see if that works on, on Zoom or not. Oh, you can do that, huh? And I tried doing this with the, with the actual birds mm -hmm. in, in the walks. And that's been a fascinating experience. Sometimes some of them get confused as if there's a new bird in the, <laughs> in the vicinity. <laughs> it's really funny. And they will look around being like, what is this bird? What kind of a sound is this? I think uh, a couple of interesting threads came up there, John, that you spoke of. And uh, 
In terms of cultivation, I wanted to touch first on the cultivation element, which is a little more uh, so that if someone is listening to this, they can actually take that and apply it. And then after that, I wanted to talk about the thought that you put in, in choosing the specific spaces mm -hmm. and, and the idea of sacredness. I think this word sacredness has become really alive for me recently. And I wanted to have a reflection on that as well. So first, in terms of the cultivation of this practice. So for instance, at some point in time, I was playing with the perception of temperature and I was cultivating it by going into sauna. And then as soon as I would come out of the sauna after 15 minutes, I would go into freezing cold water under the shower. And that helped me expand the range of perception of temperature and not contract at the cold or the hot. And that was sort of expanding the range. But I do feel that was probably quite jerky in terms of its movement because you go from one edge to the other. Yeah. And I'm wondering if it might have been actually better to sort of start small in more supportive Yes, and then expand instead of going intense. And obviously, this was about seven, maybe not seven, maybe five years ago. So I was a young man in my early twenty, and I wanted to do intense things. Uh, but if you could comment on that, because based on what you mentioned, it sounds like extremes are helpful. But if we want to integrate, and that's something which I find in the way of nature process a little bit we are trying to not go extreme ever. Like you never told us to sort of push things super hard. It was always slow expansion, but. Well, uh, to, to be honest, the, the way I work as a teacher is I follow the rule of moderation in all things, including moderation. <laughs> Beautiful, yeah. I had to come up with that. Cause sometimes these sharp cutting through experiences are extremely important especially when you reach that point where you're so close to connecting to true nature. A good teacher or a great spirit or uh, the great mystery at those moments will often provide a profound cutting through experience, which on the surface appears to be very extreme, but actually is serving to cut through all the normal distractions and uh, uh, things that pull you away from that final deep dive. That includes, by the way, bliss, one of the, the final obstacles that you come into, because many of these practices that we share in the way of nature lead to the opening of a very pure kind of energy body. And your experience of that refined energy body and purified energy body is bliss. That's the natural state of a purified energy body. So you can become kind of addicted to that bliss, just like a drug. And it can prevent you from that final dive into absolute pure source, pure true, true nature. So a skillful teacher who's guiding somebody, helping them go through the incomplete journey, will skillfully apply a cutting through process to remove and destroy all the subtle attachments that we have to bliss and to other kinds of things that we were bound up in, but we're not even aware of because they're so subtle. It destroys all those things, and what's left is bare, naked, open awareness. Beautiful. But before that, it's extremely helpful to go through an extended period of time of refinement 
where you're exploring, just as you were saying before, the things that have been uh, distractions perhaps, or things that you contract against or you, you want to grab onto either uh, in a very clear way or maybe a very subtle way. And we often do like to bring in some of the extreme in the beginning. So you begin to say, oh, well, this is what cold feels like. This is what real hot feels like. Now let's see if we can pay attention to uh, a little less degree of hot, a little less degree of cold and begin to refine the point to the point where you might be in an environment where you're experiencing the alternation between hot and cold in a very, very subtle way by just say one degree. And you're able to perceive a shift of one degree of either temperature or Fahrenheit. Uh, immediately you pick that up through your sense of, of touch and, feet and temperature. And normally you don't, most of us don't perceive a one degree shift in Fahrenheit, let's say. But after you've done the training, you will be able to perceive that. Then the next level of this refinement, after you've done that with all your senses, then your next level of refinement is, is there anything in you that naturally contracts or grabs onto that experience of the sense? If there is, then you develop the skill of being able to relax into that sense of attachment or aversion and you learn how to release it. So it's completely free and liberated. It no longer is a source of either distraction or and contraction or attachment. And then it's just pure experience. And then of course, when you go deeper and deeper into resting in pure consciousness and pure source, these displays of these sensations are just a simple dance or a magical display that's arising from source. You're not, it's not a problem in any way. It's just a, it's an amazing efflorescence that is happening. And it's not involved with either attachment or contraction. And that's why I will take my senior students at the conclusion of their training and I'll ask them to sit down and turn on a political uh, channel like uh, maybe CNN or NBC or Fox News and sit there with, if they have a political affiliation, sit especially with the affiliation that you have some antipathy towards. If you can sit there and just experience that that TV display as just a natural display that's arising from the electrons on the tube and, and relax into the, any, even a small moment of contraction or attachment and release any sense of having to respond in some way. Then do the same thing with circumstances in the outer world. Maybe go into a very busy city I like to take people to Walmart and have them go into Walmart and um, have them walk around and do a bit of shopping and practice the same thing. Remain in a state of pure open consciousness while the things that before caused to get all kind of contracted and bound up. You know that experience if you've been shopping too long and you just, you're burnt out, you've had too much, you're in a state of overload. Well, you, this time you go in and you remain in a state of source and all this other stuff that formerly created a sense of overload and, um, and drained you, now it doesn't touch that because you're resting in a state of pure awareness. Nothing can change that. Nothing can destroy that. So you ultimately take it to that level of, of, of application. But that's for advanced students that have gone through the entire refinement process that I was mentioning earlier. And then, of course, as part of the refinement, as I said before, a skillful teacher will 
when you're just at that point of refinement where your main attachment is remaining in the bliss of being in a very profound state of meditation, that's the moment where the coming through uh, event or moment is provided by a skillful teacher. And then if they are themselves are in the state of resting in pure source, a tremendous opening can happen for the student. Uh, obviously that takes preparation and uh, it also takes a skillful teacher who is well established in connection to pure source and the recognition of that. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. I think my curiosity in these conversations is such that I have three questions, but then with a response, I have two more uh, that, that pop in. And what came to me was, I was reminded of an experience that I had recently, first of all, where I was going through the day, I was having a conversation with someone and there was a glass of water in their hands and it dropped and it shattered. Mm. And in that shattering, Beautiful. Uh, uh, it also, it, it unfortunately cut a little bit of their finger, uh, just a little bit of blood. But in that one second, the entire awareness just cleaned itself. Yeah. And it was very interesting. And I was ambivalent about something mm -hmm. uh, with respect to the conversation we were having, the context I was in. And after that, I just knew the answer. <laughs> Are you for a moment, for an instant, you dropped into source. And it felt like it just cleaned all the chatter and the junk that was confusing me on the surface. That was very interesting. And that's what came to me. And by the way, uh, when, you, when you have a spontaneous event like that and there's a, a bit of blood that comes up because you somehow cut yourself accidentally, that's a perfect moment to take that blood and offer it to, uh, offer it back to source, offer it to some being of nature that you want to give great honor and respect to. Mm. Uh, I often will take that to a, a flower or a tree and to the spirits of a, of a sacred place and uh, honor that specific being of nature and great spirit for the gift of this lifetime. A blood offering is very powerful. And of course, women get to do it every month for much of their life. Men have to find other ways to give a blood offering. But again, it's part of an ancient spiritual practice and you should never kill another being or take the blood of another animal in that way. It's, it should be done by your own blood and it should be done in the sacred way where you, this is your offering. I often use my hair as well as an offering for the same reason. That's part of me that I can give to back out to great spirit in nature. When I have a haircut, I save the hair and I use it for offerings. When I go out into nature, when I go to a meditation seat at the sacred land sanctuary, before where I sit, I take some of my hair, maybe a little tobacco as well, mixed in or sage or sweetgrass, and I offer that to the spirits of that place and to the and to the seat and to great spirit in thankfulness for the gift of the experience that I'm about to receive. And the more we can do that in life and have a, a way of having continuous gratitude and giving back like that, the more powerful and the deeper our process of transformation will go. 
this again is not something that we we've kind of lost this 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 is inherent i mentioned the kogi before one of the kogi things that all the kogi people do and all the tayuna people the other four tribes what they all do is have a tremendous and deep respect for giving back to nature for this gift of life and giving back to spirit for the gift of this life and giving back to great spirit for the overall gift of existence and this is a profound and daily part of their their practice and their cultivation process we need to start doing that again because it will help to rebond us much more profoundly with the rest of our big life family and with great spirit and it doesn't have to be a big complicated ceremony if you simply open your heart use your hair use a bit of your blood if that's happened for some reason and um, i don't think you want to go around with a knife and cut yourself up all the place but uh, and then of course here in the americas tobacco stage and sweetgrass are classical offerings copal is another very good one i'm sure in europe and, and in asia there are equivalents to those things I know incense is very popular in, in Asia and many places to do this kind of offering. But the main thing is make it personal, do it from the heart, and make sure you include nature as part of what you give back to as well as great spirit. Because we need to come into a, a rebalanced and harmonious relationship with the rest of life in our, our home ecosystem again. We're way out of balance. And if we have no respect for nature, then how are we possibly ever going to come up with behaviors that reflect that respect you know, in our laws, in our, in our technologies, in our economies, and so on and so forth? If there's no fundamental respect, you can't create healthy economies, regenerative economies, regenerative behaviors, and the new technologies we create, and the kind of politics that we, we utilize to manifest things. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I think it sort of almost brings us to the question that I wanted to touch upon, which was around the idea of sacredness. And, you know, I was born in a culture which has a lot of rituals and I was born in the Hindu culture and was surrounded by offerings of all kinds in the pujas and a lot of beautiful rituals as well and the prayers and i think at some point after exposure to western science and uh, a deep dive into physics and engineering where my training was i had a sort of disconnection with that and i started interacting with the world as atoms and bits to be played with and to be worked on from the top and that was a very interesting and instrumentalist view of reality where everything was an instrument or, and that had a relationship where the body is an instrument and the mind is sort of deciding what to do with the body and we did our first, when I met you first in Italy, we did this sacred ceremony, the 11 direction ceremony. direction, yeah. Yeah, and <clears throat> very interesting for me because obviously with a lot of that training in science and 
uh, engineering, I was really not sure what I was doing and why I was doing it. And yet a part of me was very pulled into it and I still did it. And it was a very interesting felt tension between uh, a rationalistic mind and the felt sense in my body. And since then, I've been cultivating into Taoist methods uh, and, and so on. And the relationship to matter has started to transform. And there's an infusion almost. There's a sense of bi-directional nature of relationship. It's not just me interacting on matter, on stones or wood. I can sometimes feel the energetic response of a table in my being, in a way. I can feel if the design of the room opens me up or if it closes me down. When I go into the park, I feel my way around to find the spot where I would like to sit. And the sense of receiving the quality of space has been very interesting. And this idea of sacredness of space. So uh, I would love for you to reflect back on, on this because I've seen the way you've carried out some of the process. There's a way in which you help both people participating in the retreat and, and just in terms of creating the container for the group to infuse a sense of sacredness and meaning into the into what might appear a very ordinary experience, like perhaps finding a piece of wood that just pulls you, right? But there can be an infusion of sacredness into that. And that I found is a beautiful, beautiful art, a, a real gift in, in how we move through the world. And it's, it's something that is very young in, in its process for me. And I find that to be very impactful. So I would love for you to, to reflect on that. No, beautiful, you're discovering that. And of course, your background is so strong with Hindu culture is amazing when it comes to honoring the sacredness in every little facet and detail of life. I mean, Hindu culture is amazing that way. One of the places that um, that kind of uh, perspective still survives also is in Bali. I'm not sure about the surfing areas, but it's certainly in Ubud and most of the the more rural parts of Bali. I so far as I'm worshiping the ocean as well. for <laughs> me, <laughs> that's true, that's true. Um, I think the, uh, one of the things that we have been including in the way of nature process as a training, and I'm, I'm gonna, I've done that earlier book on the cultivating natural liberation, which has the individual leaves, but I'm gonna be doing a volume two and in the volume two, the very first thing I'm going to include is the power of intent. Because this is such an important key. If you combine the power of the intent, a power of intent with the natural opening of the heart, then you have the foundation for beginning to perceive everything as sacred, as it truly is. The perception of things as, as sacred is a perception of seeing everything that arises in, in this world as a manifestation of great spirit and of source. 
and it appears in an almost magical way. I suppose in science these days it would really be touching into the experience, the experience of uh, the experiential field of the quantum, the quantum field, and how it behaves. Uh, things appear appear to appear quite magically and manifest in a very magical, profound way. And, uh, and you, have, you develop a deep appreciation for how the gift of all these beautiful things that appear is uh, very transitory and precious in each moment. Because everything is so transitory and precious in each moment, you develop that sense of, of, the, of the, the depth and the power of, of the, and the uniqueness of each experience of life in each moment. And in that sense, life naturally begins to self-transform into a sacred experience. There are places in nature where that experience of deep sacredness has become so profound that it's, it's held in the stones, it's held in the earth, it's held in the mountain, it's held in the, in the, the ocean bay, it's held in the trees, it's held in many of the animals and plants of that place. You enter these environments and you're immediately supported by the entire field of nature that kind of saturates you with this, this perspective of the inherent sacredness of life. The sacred land sanctuary here in Creston is one such place, and that's why I go there every single day for that fail. I almost never miss going there. If I do, it's because I uh, have an illness problem or maybe my car breaks down, I can't get there. Uh, something happens where I just can't get there. But I, I try to go there every single day. And as I mentioned, I had an 11-year retreat there, deep retreat in its sacredness. So I think each one of us can have, find a place like this in their local nature, in their local ecosystem, where they can make that kind of deep, profound connection in a sacred way to themselves, in their inner nature, and in outer nature through what, what's arising there, whatever it might be, the stones, the flowers, the trees, the, the larger forms of the, the beautiful bay along the, the coast or the immense mountain that rises before you uh, or the openness of a vast. I, I, often, I worked for a while in the Midwest. I was amazed at the few patches of original prairie that still left, were left. And when I went to those places, what a sense of vastness and spaciousness opened up. It's like being in the ocean with a sea of tall grass waving, as it must have been when the first pioneers came out. And of course, the native peoples had kept it in that kind of condition for forever. Uh, now that's been lost for the most part, just a few patches here and there that deep sacredness can still be touched into. But almost everywhere you can find us like that. And if you go there, and even if it's a place that's been disturbed, if you go there with a deep and open heart, and a sense of reverence and respect. And you give back in the way I just mentioned through ceremony. We recommend the 11 direction ceremony because it's a universal ceremony that came through as a gift for everyone. It's not the property of a particular culture or a particular religion, it's open to all. And you can use, and it comes from a common ground that you'll find in most of the world's uh, cultural traditions. So when you utilize that tool, it very quickly helps you to begin to deepen your connectivity to the sacredness of the place where you are <clears throat> and the power of intent 
not the power of will, the power of intent, which means that you already have an intuition of connectivity with everything. And from that comes a sense of doing something that's really to the benefit of all and in harmony with the, the total system. If you, if you can take that experience, that becomes focalized in a particular intent. And then that gets focused through the 11 direction ceremony to get back your respect and appreciation and love through the ceremony and through your prayers. And later on through your meditative practices or your contemplative practices. Then the sacredness can be deepened, 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 deepened. And even a place that's been disturbed, you can bring a kind of healing energy field back into that place where it begins to blossom in a new, a new way over time. And this is a gift you can bring to places in nature that have even been through some kind of disturbance or disruption. Um, this is a big subject, actually. I'd love to, maybe sometime we can talk about this and have this as the focal point for the sharing because it's a big one. Yeah, yeah, it does seem like it as well. And it does seem to me that the one thing that I really feel the materialistic, consumeristic ontology of the world has missing mm -hmm. is the sense of sacred. Yeah, we're so caught up in subject-object separation in contemporary yeah. science that we everything becomes an object and then we wed that to our cultural patterns of always wanting to take from nature and then we if we learn we eventually learn by taking 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 that if we're going to continue taking we better behave in a more sustainable way so you get sustainable this sustainable that sustainable forestry sustainable agriculture and so on but even there there's not this basic uh, feeling of being in partnership, in harmonious relationship, and uh, unfolding something that's to the benefit of all life, not just what we can take. And so ultimately, if you follow the way of nature process, you end up as a full um, symbiotic partner with the rest of life, with the plants, with the animals, and with the soil and with, and with the atmosphere, with everything in nature. And what, com what comes out of that relationship is of benefit to the totality. And that's why I kind of come back to the fact that maybe today we should really celebrate, uh, along with the Independence Day, uh, a day of interdependence, a day of interconnectivity, a time of deep honoring of the interconnectivity and the how the family of life has worked together as a team to bring this amazing gift of being here in these forests and, and uh, meadows and, and uh, savannas and tropical rainforests and mountain alpine tundras and just this amazing display this, this, this planet has to offer. It's a, it's a garden, it's a magical garden and it's being treated like, uh, it's not being treated well. And yeah. we're in the process of destroying it because we're not in balance. And it's from that very attitude you mentioned that we're always cutting ourselves off from that connection through subject-object division. I'm here and that is there and we're separate. And I'm going to take from that and get something from that. Yeah. That has to change. Yeah, beautiful. And it seems like 
the power of intent and perhaps we will continue the dialogue on sacredness in a future session but even beginning a process even coming to a teaching even going to a retreat what intention do we come with do we come with an intention of sacredness do we come in with an intention of humility and reverence i feel that some of these qualities and words are seeming to just vanish from the zeitgeist what it is to be in reverence in all in humility of the display of life because if we just experience that it just naturally opens us up and it just takes away yeah. the ego you wouldn't destroy something that you consider sacred exactly and of course ultimately the you mentioned the word ego and that's 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 part of the root uh, challenge part of the now the ego and the separate awareness does have a role to play in the dance of life and, and it mostly has a survival function at the level of survival and competition which as we said earlier is a, is a small part of the overall picture of life the big part is collaboration symbiosis cooperation working together in a team like fashion both within the same species and and within the family of life with many species and populations involved in an ecosystem that's how it's evolved and become so complete and comprehensive over time the law of collaboration and cooperation and interconnection is very very important and it's mostly forgotten or uh, is feared because it threatens the power of the individuated ego and if we bow down every day to the individual ego we will never free ourselves and liberate from the dependence upon this ego type of consciousness which is based upon separation and subject subject object dualism the entire way of nature process opens up a a connection to a level of true nature which is not based on the ego it's based on on absolutely pure formless awareness the ego still has a a minor a bit player role to play in that but it it's no longer the the king of or the chief of the the kingdom it's 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 a bit player it's a small player in the overall play of life and um once it it drops into that kind of relationship and source becomes the preeminent experience of recognition then everything shifts everything comes back in the balance perhaps a symbolic shift between pulling away into individuation and independence and then coming back into the harmony that we were speaking right. of yeah beautiful i think that seems like a perfect finishing point point completed our journey into the the day of inner connectivity inner yeah. yeah it seems to have connected back to where we started It was lovely speaking to you today John. Yeah, I'm glad you we were able to do this. We both had some other things on the table but we both found that we had a little free time to do this. So and since it's we're on the threshold of independence day here in the states I thought well this could be our sharing of the interdependence day partner. Beautiful happy independence day. Yes. <laughs> happy interdependence day. Okay. Where we can
Bye. Good to see you.